Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Journey of Faith. I'm Jason Cusick. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I want to say hi to everybody at our Torrance campus. It was great to be with you last week. Uh, love going to the Torrance campus just a few minutes away from my house, so that makes it real easy as well. Uh, if you are watching online, maybe you couldn't make it to one of our uh, in-person services at either of our campuses and you're watching online, great that you can be with us. And if you're, you're new with us, maybe this is your first weekend with us. Thanks so much for being with us. We're in a series of messages we're calling Lenses, and the analogy behind this series is that there's a lot of different lenses in the world that help us see the same world in different ways, things like microscopes and telescopes and kaleidoscopes, and even our glasses and our contact lenses help us see the same world in different ways. Well, what lenses do in the physical world genres do the same thing in the literary world. And the Bible is one book, it's one of the greatest pieces of literature in history, and it tells one story through different lenses of different genres. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at how different genres in literature can help us understand God better, can help us relate to each other better, and at times, understanding genres can even help us sort out Bible difficulties. So here, here's the six main genres of the Bible that we're talking about in this series. We covered these first two in the last couple of weeks, and if you missed either one of those, you can go on our website or you can go on our YouTube channel and catch up. Today, we're going to be talking about two genres of literature that are that are kind of often coupled together and even mixed genres, and it's this. It's poetry and wisdom literature. In the Bible, poetry and wisdom literature make up about 30% of the Bible. Here's a, a bookcase image that we've shared in the last couple of weeks with the Old Testament and the New Testament, and most of the poetry and wisdom literature is in this section of the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and even Lamentations, which is uh, under prophecy. Poetry actually pops up quite a bit in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, we have Moses' sister Miriam, who sees an amazing work of God and then is inspired to write a song that goes along with that. Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she discovered that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, she uh, shares a song, which is this beautiful poetic uh, verse about celebrating how good God is. The Bible also contains poetry at the beginning and the end of the Bible. The book of Genesis and the book of Revelation have poetical structure built into them, which is also why there's a lot of debates about how to understand what the Bible says about the beginning of the world and the end of the world, because a lot of it is written in poetic form, symbolic form, imagery. So people are like, is this poetry or history, or is it history written in a poetic form? So there's differences of opinions about that. But poetry and wisdom as a genre does something unique for us that no other genre does. And let me explain what that is by just sharing with you a story about when my wife and I were running errands a few weeks ago. And um, 
it was right around dinner time, and we were like, let's stop off at the grocery store, pick up some food, and bring it home and cook it. And we're kind of homebodies, and I have a very kind of plain, bland, kind of Midwest kind of diet, nothing special. And so we go into the store to go pick up some food, and we look at the prepared food section. We were at Whole Foods over, uh, over here on Crenshaw and PCH. We looked at the prepared food section, and we were like, we hungry. We were like, we, now we want to eat. So we waited to shop, and we went over the pre- prepared food area, and it was like, oh my goodness. We were looking in there. It's a lot like at Lazy Acres over here, and it was just bright and beautiful and healthy. And so I got one of those trays, started filling up. You know what I realized? I started filling up the tray by color. I was like, oh, I want some red, or I need some yellow. I need, look, oh, this thing's kind of purple. Let me put that in there. And suddenly it was like my food palette went from black and white to technicolor. That is the role of poetry and wisdom literature in the Bible. Sometimes when we look at the Bible, we go, okay, here's a list of commandments, and then here's some genealogies. Here's some stories of people that did right and some other people. Most of the people screwed things up. But where's, where's the heart? Where's the passion? Where's the emotion? Where's the life? That's what the poetry and wisdom literature does when we're reading the Bible. In fact, when we're reading the Bible, if you're reading it through, you almost have to switch gears in how you read when you hit a poem. Like maybe there's somebody talking, then suddenly they break into song. You can be like, okay, let me read this the same way I was just reading the story or the same way I read commandments. No, no, no. Now I switch and there's something emotive going on. There's something creative going on. And when we read poetry and wisdom in the Bible, we tap into something very special. We tap into God's love for us in a couple of unique ways. Here's the main idea of what I want to share with you today. Through the lens of biblical poetry and wisdom, we can see God's accepting love for us. Let me share with you a couple of ways we do this, and then we're going to close our service by revisiting one of the songs that we were singing earlier. Let's look at God's accepting love for us first through the idea of biblical poetry. Here's what biblical poetry does. Poetry invites us to bring our feelings to God. Would you consider yourself an emotionally intelligent person? Emotional intelligence is about knowing what you're feeling and being able to find ways to communicate what's happening inside of you. It's a skill that's not only essential for healthy relationships, but also in the professional world. It's very important in the spiritual life. Were you encouraged to express emotions in the home you grew up in? Maybe you grew up in one of those homes where it's like, no, we don't do emotions. Maybe you grew up in a home where everybody did emotions, but it didn't feel very safe. What is the role that your emotional life plays in your spiritual life? Biblical poetry helps us not only mirror our emotions and the fact that we read biblical poetry and we say, ah, that's how I feel, but also biblical poetry helps us manage our emotions, that it takes us from a place of random expression of feelings towards something intentional. 
And it does that because biblical poetry is not just a bunch of like feelings thrown on a page. It's not like a Jackson Pollock painting where it's just stuff hurled at it. No, poetry has structure. It has meter. It has stanzas. In fact, let me show you one of the, one of the best segments of the Bible about biblical poetry is the book of Psalms. And Psalms are song lyrics without the sheet music. So we don't have the sheet music, but we have the lyrics. And they're actually compiled in a certain way. If you look in your Bible under uh, the Psalms, you'll see that they're laid out in five different books, segmented, segmented out, different Psalms. Some people believe that they were compiled in order to match the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, and that maybe their themes in these Psalms uh, are very similar to some of the themes in the first five books of the Bible. Other people have taken these five books of the Psalms and looked at the content and themes of the Psalm and say, no, no, it's not so much about the books of the Bible. These Psalms help us locate ourselves emotionally in a relationship with God. And so they've mapped them out like this, like Psalm 1 uh, to 41 is God beside me, and then there's God before me, and God around me, and God above me, and God among us. So there's structure as you're reading the Psalms. You can go, ah, what, what, is, what are the authors of these poems trying to help me do? And how are they helping me locate myself in a relationship with God? Poems in the Bible are also filled with imagery. Jesus used imagery all the time. He referred to himself. He said, I am the light. I am the gate. I am the vine. When he, when he talked to religious hypocrites, he called them snakes. When Jesus talked about wanting to help people find life with God, he said, if you want life with God, you must be born again. Jesus used imagery and simile and metaphor all the time. And again, the Psalms, that core part of, of Hebrew poetry in that genre in the Bible, is filled with all kinds of imagery. Here's some of them. The Lord is my God. No, the Lord is my shepherd. So it invites you to begin imagining what a shepherd is like and how a shepherd related to sheep. The laws of the Lord are sweeter than honey. Not something I would normally associate with laws of the Lord, but the laws of the Lord are sweet. They're, they're delicious. They're satisfying. They, they awaken the senses. Here's one. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. When we read biblical poetry, it awakens our creativity and our imagination. And as it does that, it kind of accesses part of our brain that is relational and emotional. That's why the Psalms and, and biblical poetry is also filled with what's called non-literal language. This is, for example, like intentional exaggeration or saying things to make a dramatic point that might not be literally true. I'll give you a, a real simple example. There's a wonderful love poem in the Bible called the Song of Songs, and in it, the groom says this, you are altogether beautiful my darling, beautiful in every way. Isn't that wonderful? It's so beautiful. Is it literally true? Is she beautiful in every exact way? 
No, that's not. This is what we do, right? When we are in love. I, I, I was talking to my wife the other night. This is cleared with her. Uh, I'm, but I was like, when I say I love you with my whole heart, no, I don't. Like, no one loves anybody with their whole heart. But the point is, I'm not saying that literally. I'm saying it literarily. This is an expression. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point, to try to communicate what we're feeling. Here's a great example that I ran across while I was just reading through the Bible, and it kind of got me into a little, uh, a little circle here as I was trying to understand this. Here is a quote from David, who was um, going to be a future king of Israel, and David is writing this song in Psalm 142. Here's what he says. Look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Now, this is Psalm 142. Now, if you read Psalm 142, it tells you at the top of Psalm 142, this was written by David while he was in the cave of Adullam. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I looked up in the Bible, the cave of Adullam. We actually have the historical narrative of what was happening to David when he was in the cave of Adullam. And you can find it here in 1 Samuel chapter 22, the historical story of what was going on with David. And guess what? One, he was in a cave. Did he have refuge? Yeah, David wrote this in a cave. And he says, I'm all alone. No one cares for me. No one's with me. When you read 1 Samuel chapter 22, it says that David was surrounded by 400 men who had pledged his loyalty. That they were like, we will die for you. We have left our families. We will die for you. David is not saying, I am literally alone. He's saying, I feel alone. Even though there's 400 people that are willing to die for me. Non-literal language is part of what's involved when we're expressing our hearts and our feelings. And that's because we're getting at emotions. And that's really what poetry does. Poetry invites us to have emotional expression. In the book of Lamentations, there's a beautiful line that says, Restore us, O Lord. Bring us back to you again. Give us back the joys we once had. Have you, have you said that before? You've been like, I just want to be happy again. I just want joy again. It's a way to express longing and hope. And the Psalms kind of invite us to pour out our hearts to God. You know who did this really well? Jesus. Each week we're talking about a genre of literature, but then we also are including this important genre of gospel. Gospel is a unique genre of the Bible, and it's the four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that summarize Jesus' life. So we emphasize genre because genre is the lens that we understand all the other genres through. And when Jesus was at his darkest moment in life, when he was struggling the most, when he was trying to access his thoughts and feelings while dying on the cross... He chose to go to biblical poetry to express himself. In the midst of his crucifixion, he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, 
why have you abandoned me? That's the power of biblical poetry. So here's an action step for you as you're reading that genre or even in your spiritual life. Use the Psalms to pour out your heart to God. When you're feeling something, you don't quite know what it is, open up the book of Psalms and begin reading and see if you can locate your emotion in there. If you have a regular process of reading the Bible, read through the Psalms and let the Psalms awaken some of those emotions in you. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling. I'm lonely. I'm angry. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling neglected. I'm feeling joyful. I'm feeling grateful. I'm feeling guilty. All of those things are in that poetry, and they're accessing a different part of your brain. That's what it means to be a whole person with God, is we're not just accumulating information and then applying it to our lives. We're actually relating to God from our inner self, from the feelings that God has given us. And we become more emotionally intelligent as we read this genre. It's also really important because sometimes when we're feeling emotionally confused or we're having unpleasant emotions or we want to find a way to express those emotions, sometimes we go to unhealthy places to do that. Like we look, I don't know what I'm feeling, or I'm feeling this way, or I'm feeling that way, I don't like it. And we go, let me just, I just want to numb it out. So we'll just say, it, sometimes it's easier for us to say, I'm going to have a drink, rather than I'm going to feel my feelings. And the writers of the New Testament knew this in the first century. In fact, they addressed it. Look at how one writer put it. He said, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, instead of being drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing hymns and, and psalms and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Don't numb yourself out. Don't avoid the feelings. In fact, find a context where you can access and express your feelings in a genuinely spiritual way. This is one of the reasons why the singing part of our service is such a big part of what we do. In churches like ours, Bible churches, people tend to be like, I'm here for the message. And some of you might be like, hey, I, I, I'll get there in time for the message. We craft an entire service with teaching and with singing to access a holistic spirituality that works together so that you're not only processing and applying information, but you're in a context with other people where you can access and express your emotional life. And this is a really, really important part of the spiritual life. Now, this is especially good because some of you are poetry people. You love art, you love creativity. When you talk, you use flowery language, and, and, and you use non-literal language, and you're, you're very emotional, you're quick to have your emotions, and you really relate emotionally. That is so good. Keep it up, because that artistic, poetic, creative side, we need that. Everybody needs that. Let me give you a little piece of advice Guard your heart, if you're a poetry person, guard your heart to make sure you don't take 
your non-literal language literally. I have a friend of mine that's going through a really tough time right now, and he goes, I have no hope, my life's a mess, my family doesn't love me, there's no reason for me to live. And I, I hear what he was saying, and I was like, hey, let's talk that out. By the end, he was like, well, of course I have a reason to live, and I have a lot of people that love me. But if he continues to say his non-literal language without recognizing its non-literal language, he might believe it. Be careful as you're expressing your heart, like King David, no one cares about me. Make sure you recognize you are expressing poetry and you're expressing feelings. That feeling of no one knowing you and no one loving you, that is a real feeling, but it's not true. Now, if you're in relationship with somebody that's a poetry person, uh, what a great relationship to have. Because that person is allow, it's like the spice of life. It's like creativity and it's like beauty. But make sure that you're trying to get at the person's heart and that you're not always taking them literally. Like if somebody goes, you know, I don't feel like you ever listen to me. You don't say, false, I'm listening to you right now. That's, you're taking it literally. That's not the point. The poetry is about trying to express something internally. That person is saying, I don't feel heard. I don't feel understood. I don't feel like my thoughts and feelings are being acknowledged. So when you're interacting with a poetry person, try to draw out intention and try to get at what the meaning is behind the words that are being used. That's the poetry side. Poetic literature in the Bible allows us to be able to realize that God loves us, doesn't just love what we think and what we do, but he loves what we feel, and he wants to help us with that. The other side of it is wisdom literature. And wisdom literature focuses on how we actually live out our life. And God loves us and wants us to live healthy, successful lives. This is, this is the point here. Wisdom literature helps us learn how to live skillfully. When's the last time somebody just gave you a piece of wisdom? You know what it is. It's usually like a tweet. <laughs> it's usually just like one or two sentences. They don't talk a long time. They go, here's what you got to know. Boom. And then you go, whoa, that was great. I've had that over the years. I remember uh, when I graduated from high school. I was living at home. I was going to go to El Camino College. My mom said to me, she said, if you're a full-time student, you live rent-free. If you're not a full-time student, you pay your way. Very simple principle on life that has actually helped me be financially responsible for myself going on. She had very clear expectations. She could say it in two sentences. Sometimes you can say it in one sentence. I remember I was here. I was working with a couple that had been dating for two years, and they were getting married. And they were a Christian couple, and they wanted to remain sexually pure. They wanted to have their sexual integrity until their wedding night. And uh, they did it. And I remember asking them, how did you do it? And they both said, we followed one simple principle while we were dating. Never touch anywhere fun. (laughs) Good wisdom. That was great. 
I remember when I, when I first started working here at the church, 2004, I was a new pastor, and the senior adults pastor um, came and met with me, and he said, Jason, I think you're really gifted. I think you'll be very successful. Um, you can have a lifetime in Christian ministry as a pastor if you follow this simple piece of wisdom. He said, don't do anything stupid. That was good. And what he was talking about was don't commit adultery, don't embezzle money, don't teach things that aren't true, and, and learn to control your emotions. Simple piece of advice. When's the last time somebody just gave you a piece of wisdom? That's what wisdom literature is about. Wisdom literature in the Bible are simple phrases, one or two sentences that are aimed at helping us live successfully. The Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is probably the best example of this. And the book of Proverbs operates off of a principle of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And the idea is you have two sentences and those sentences or two thoughts. Let me give you some examples. There's different kinds of parallelism in the book of Proverbs. One of them is called clarity parallelism. Here's a great example. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Talks about prosperity uh, and generosity. The first sentence says something. The second sentence clarifies it. So when you read through the Proverbs, you see these ki- this kind of a structure. Here's another kind of parallelism. It's called a contrast parallelism. Here's an example of that. Hatred stirs up quarrels, but love makes up for all offenses. First sentence says something. Second sentence says the opposite. Here's another kind of parallelism. It's about consequences. Here's one of my favorite ones. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's a really good one, right? Here's the consequences. Wisdom says be aware of the consequences. Here's one on the positive side. It says direct your children onto the right path, and when they're older, they won't leave it. Good, simple practical wisdom. The Bible's filled with wisdom literature, not only in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, but in the New Testament. Jesus actually spoke with wisdom sayings, and wisdom sayings are usually black and white. They sort out a very confusing world, and they say, look, here's what you need to know. Here is probably one of the most uh, memorable and significant wisdom sayings that Jesus said. He says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate, The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Jesus is saying, look, you want to be right with God? Really, life is only about two directions. There's a broad way, that way goes to hell, and that's where everybody heads that way. There's another way, it's a narrow way, and it's difficult. But that's the way to God. Wisdom is often black and white, very simple, boils down a confusing world to a few simple ideas. In fact, some of you are wisdom people. That's how you talk. You're like, well, the world's really easy. There's evil people and there's good people. Be a good person. So you're like, you know what happens? You work hard, you make money. You be lazy, you're going to be poor. And you know, you talk to people like that. You have people like that in your life. Well, isn't life a little bit more complicated than that? And they go, no, no, it's not. There's, there's good people and evil people. If you're a wisdom person, thank you for 
sorting through all the ambiguity and all the lengthy internet articles and, and all the, the, the nuances and just giving practical wisdom. If you want to be successful, go get a job. <laughs> you, want to, you want to stop having problems in your relationship? Try shutting up sometimes. That's what wisdom people say. And you know what? There's some real good truth in that. Now, if you're a wisdom person, just recognize there are ambiguities in the world. You might not be comfortable navigating them, but, but th- things are not all black and white and very simple and clear. But thank you for being so simple and clear. And if you know a wisdom person, appreciate how they can sort through all of the stuff in the world and come down with some very simple principles because sometimes we make things more complicated than they actually are. Talk to a wisdom. If you're struggling in your life, talk to a wisdom person. They'll tell you. They'll tell you exactly what you need to start doing and stop doing. And it can make a lot of sense. But a little advice. Don't go to them for nuanced conversations. (laughs) Probably the best wisdom book that we have in the Bibles is called Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is like a wisdom thinker processing his whole life. And and it's like a journal. He's going, you know, I've tried different things. I've tried money. I was looking for meaning in life, he writes. And I've tried money, and I've tried relationships, and I've tried education. I've read all these books, and I've tried pleasure, and then I've tried withholding pleasure. And you know what? He goes, life is meaningless. When you're looking through and you're trying to get meaning from all these things in life, there's no meaning in life. Spoken like a wisdom person, right? I tried all those things. There's no meaning in life. Um, But look at how he ends this amazing book. Here's what he says. After he'd done this whole long journey, he says, well, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. This is everyone's duty. He's like, you know, I went through all this stuff. You know what it is? God loves you. God's there. Do what God says. That's what everybody should. Everybody should just do what God says. And if everybody just did what God said, we'd be all right. And we'd all have meaning in our lives. Here's an action step for us related to wisdom literature. Walk in wisdom by following Jesus. Here's why I say that. Christians in the first century who were incredibly knowledgeable about Jewish philosophy and literature, Roman philosophy, Greek philosophy, all these big philosophical systems, um, they understood the basic power of following Jesus and how that could change our lives. In fact, there was one person, his name was Paul, he was one of Christianity's first missionaries, very knowledgeable of Hebrew, Roman, and Greek philosophy. And look what he said. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I've studied all the philosophy. I've studied all the thinkers. I've studied all the the theologies and philosophies of the world. You know what wisdom is? Jesus. Have a relationship with Jesus. And then do what Jesus says. And your life will be successful. And that's a good message for us. It's a good message for us every day when we look out in the world, it's so complicated, and there's all this stuff to read and all this stuff to understand. There's something powerful. Let me just go back to the teachings of Jesus and do what they say. And you know what I found about the teachings of Jesus? 
They're simple. They're not easy, but they're simple. Here's what we talked about today. Through the lens of biblical poetry and wisdom, we can see God's accepting love for us. God loves us. God loves you and has given you this genre in the Bible. Poetry invites us to bring our feelings to God. God wants your feelings, and he wants to mirror your feelings, and he wants to help you manage your feelings, to express them and explore them and help them be conduits to connecting with God and connecting with other people. And wisdom literature helps us learn how to live skillfully. God's not like, hey, just love me in your heart and then do whatever you want. No, God's like, I've got some direction for you. I've got some advice about your job, about your relationships, about your feelings, about your money, about how you live. And there are some simple principles that if you could follow these, you will find success and happiness. And that's part of God's love for us. As we dive into the genre of poetry and wisdom, we learn something very special about God. And that is that God makes all things beautiful.